Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing little observers and responsibility, how we hurt ourselves. So this is a story from my childhood. I don't believe I've shared it before. And I know we have a lot of new listeners of the show. That's because so many of you help be our marketing team and you share it and you subscribe to it. And that helps show the show to more and more people. So we have new listeners. Welcome. I'm so glad you found us. It means you've made it all the way to here. And maybe you'll be here for a moment, a sampler of what I have to offer. Or maybe you'll be more of a long hauler, someone who dives in deeply and stays a while. All I ask is that you trust your gut as you move through my content and that you lean in when intuition says, ooh, maybe I should lean in here. This might be a place to dig deep, to hang tight. There might be something to learn here and to resist the shutdown of fear. Because going deep is scary. It takes courage to face ourselves. So here's a little background on me. If you're new to the show or if you haven't been listening from the beginning and you haven't gone back. So the broad strokes are that right now, I'm an international life coach. I'm a licensed professional counselor. I'm a psychotherapist. And I've started the show to help share my story, to teach from my story personally and professionally. Because as I've developed as a counselor professionally, I've certainly developed personally. And I am of the belief that in healing, the relationship, the authenticity that we share is a big part of the healing that we feel. Because we're meant to be social. We're meant to be held by each other. We're meant to have soft places to fall in other people to learn how to be a soft place to fall within ourselves. So the broad strokes of my history, if you're just getting to know me, that as a child, if I look at the, the traumas that really shaped me, I was abandoned by a biological father by the time I was 10, and my mother married a child sexual predator. 
Now, I grew up, if you go back and listen to the beginning of the show, I grew up, I pressed charges when I was 23 years old, and I started the show right after finding out he was going to be released six years early on good behavior. Now, when I name those traumas, those are big, obvious traumas. And one of the things I've come to learn through my work with others is that in some ways, it's simpler. It's not easy, but it's simpler when we have solid abuses. I mean, getting molested is a solid thing. If we're aware that that happened to us, we know whether we're avoiding it right now or not. We know, okay, that needs some psychological help. That needs some work. I have some work to do. I have some healing to do. That hurt me. You know, if your parents beat you with bricks or slapped you around, it's easy in a sense to look back and go, okay, that was wrong, probably affected me in some ways that aren't so great, and I need to work on it, even if I don't know what that work is. It's a lot more difficult to look into our histories and understand the subtle ways that we're influenced, the subtle ways that as empaths, I'm a strong empath, that we may pick up like sponges, dysfunctional things that really don't serve us. And that's what this episode is about today. And I hope by sharing a story from my childhood, it helps you plug into your own childhood and some nuance about where you might hold some hurt. Because my hope for myself along the way and my hope for you has been to wring out as much dysfunction just like a sponge that's too wet. I, you, doesn't it feel good to wring that sponge out? We want to wring out our dysfunction because as empaths, as highly sensitive people, we are the sponges. So there's lots that we've sponged up that we may not be fully aware of consciously. And when you listen to me share a story, that's very much how humans have learned since the beginning of time through story. So I hope you can hear the ways that you may be similar to my story and help you unlock or connect some dots, and how you may be very different from my story too. So the more that we hear story from people, the more that we can learn who we are by learning who we're not or how we're similar. So I hope that makes sense as I, as I share, and especially if you're new getting to know me. So I want to talk to you today about the ways that we may participate in traumatizing ourselves with blame. When I look back at my story, if I'm really honest with myself, because I don't like these truths, but a big truth is that I often frightened myself. I was scared a lot, so I learned how to be frightened. I often terrified myself. When we are trauma survivors and we have experienced neglect in our upbringing, we often grow up and put ourselves into physical or emotional harm's way simply because we were normalized to be in harm's way or to not know how to find or have a safe place to fall because we didn't have or we didn't find a safe place to fall. And if we can't find a safe place to fall in others, it's very hard to naturally cultivate a safe place to fall within ourselves. So within that void, many of us develop the critical voice, a shaming voice. But when we look back at our childhoods, it's not to blame us for the mistakes that we had to have made growing up, especially if we were highly sensitive and we had little to no guidance about our sensitivity and were shamed about that natural sensitivity. But the truth is, for me and for you too, that we were doing the best that we could do 
the best that we could to figure out this confusing and convoluted world. And with a background as a clinical therapist, I was very much taught not to share my story. And I really am a very strong introvert. It may not seem so because I'm on this microphone sharing with you every week, but that's because I feel called as a teacher, as a healer. And those teaching healing parts of me really challenge the introverted parts because my introverted part could very much be on an island for a very long time alone. I like solitude. So I push against my introversion a little bit to be able to connect with you, to be able to answer my own calling. If you also, this is a little side note, if you are also a therapist out there in the world and you're listening, because I know we have a lot of therapists, a lot of healers that are listening to the show. I know because we get a lot of comments about my therapist recommended this show to me. So thank you for sharing the show with your survivor and your highly sensitive clients. I'm about to open up to new clients again. And if you are on that waiting list, if you are a therapist, if you are an LPC, an LMFT, an LCSW, or an art therapist, if you're on my waiting list, I I cannot wait to meet you, to see you, and to discuss with you what I'm working on to teach my techniques rooted in boundaries work to other therapists, how to share your own story, how to get out of the dysfunction and the programming that many of us don't resonate with that we were taught by our very professions. Why am I sharing this here? Because these dynamics don't just come from our childhoods. We leave our childhoods and we get into professional dynamics. We get into work dynamics. We get into office dynamics. And these dynamics often recreate elements of our childhood experience. This is part of why dynamics in the workplace or for therapists with our licenses and how maybe controlled we might feel by what's required there. We're learning to find ourselves, to find our truths within all these systems and to do what can work for our highly sensitive systems, what resonates with our highly sensitive hearts instead of what the world thinks the right way to be is. I also get a lot of questions from highly sensitive people who are parents to highly sensitive children. So I hope there's a lot in this story today that can show you how to deal with your own inner child or your own highly sensitive child. So this is a story from my life when I was about seven to eight years old and give or take a year because I'm estranged from almost all of my family except one person. So I can't ask, and that's often a real downside to being estranged. But what I know to be true is that even if I could ask, I don't know that the truth is available in my dysfunctional family. And often that is the story when we come from a family with significant dysfunction that goes unchecked, unhealed, unaddressed. So I'm going with I was eight for this story. And the truth is, I was watching my mother date, and I hated it. I had no idea, as the little observer that I was, how much I was observing and taking in, how she would flirt, how she would play coy, how she might reach out with her hand and stroke someone's forearm with a finger how a foot might touch someone else's foot under the table in a way that I knew wasn't mother-daughter energy, 
in a way that I may have resented because she didn't give me softness. She didn't give me care. She didn't give me a lot of appropriate touch. I hated feeling and knowing that she was using her femininity this way to draw men in. And I watched it when I didn't have the words to describe it the way I just did. I just knew that it felt uncomfortable and I didn't like it. I didn't have the words to put to it to explain what was going on on the inside of me. And I didn't just observe my mom. I observed the men. And I felt as the little empath that I was that the men didn't want to interact with me. There were one or two who were better at engaging with children or if they had children would let me play with their kids. But most of the men that she went after, I felt them seeing me as an obstacle. And if you are a parent who is dating and you have small kids and you're hearing this and you're bristling, just know that it's natural for the ego to bristle a little bit. That if you just pull back and zoom out a little bit, if you felt a little sting like, ooh, I'm a dating parent, I don't know if I want to hear this. If you felt defensive, if you felt on guard, if you felt your ego create a story like, wait, I'm an excellent parent, I have every right to date. Or I don't want to hear this because I'm unwilling to evaluate how I date and how that might affect my child. Then I ask you to lean into your seeker parts. Lean into your sensitivity, lean into some curiosity to help melt that defensiveness that comes from the ego so that you can take in the message that I'm offering. You don't have to take it in and buy it, but to at least be able to take it in to see what part of this may fit for me. And if any of it fits, you can address it. And if any of it doesn't, you can toss it out. For me or any other healer or mentor or wisdom person or spiritual advisor or business coach, anyone that you seek from, because something about them resonates with you, it is always your job, in my opinion, to honor your own core first, your own intuition. And anything that doesn't resonate with you, you can toss That is you being and becoming your own authority figure. And when we are our own authority figure, no one can really manipulate us. Or if they try, we catch it really quickly and we know how to take care of ourselves around it. And of course, I believe that every parent has a right to date. And I'm not saying not to date if you are a parent. The story is to offer the nuance of the experience from my child's point of view. And if you think you have a feely little human in your care, there's a lot of potential to learn or to open up some dialogue. Okay, so I'm about eight years old. My mother was dating and it was painful. Part of the struggle I can recognize from this place of growth and wisdom and age is that living with my grandmother at the time who walked to church daily And I say this with a little laughter because I think she would laugh about it because she was going daily to pray for her child, my mother, and her three grandchildren that were living with her. There was a lot of Catholic vibe going on. And me, my sisters, and my 13 cousins on that side were raised very directly with Catholic shame. Shame and feeling bad was the primary motivation 
that the adults around me knew how to give children. So that kind of motivation can work, but it has a lot of side effect. And it works because we try to get away from that shame. But just telling a child how to get away from shame does not teach a child how to go towards love. So when we're empaths and we grow up with a lot of shaming dynamic, guess what we know how to do? Shame. Guess what we soak up like a sponge? Shame. Guess how we know how to be with ourselves? Shaming. This is a story about how I blamed and shamed and took responsibility for something that was entirely outside of my control as an eight-year-old. Because the nature of sensitivity is that we're observers. We observe more than the average person. And without wise guidance, we will make childish assumptions. Now, if you have read The Four Agreements or listened to me talk about them, I love them. They're fantastically grounding for highly sensitive people. One of those agreements is to never make assumptions. Now, as children, a lot of our development is made by assuming from our limited knowledge base. And kids are egocentric. And that is a necessary and biologically based stage of development. We are meant to be egocentric. Basically, that's a fancy word for we're supposed to be selfish as babies and as children for the sake of survival. That's why a baby will just scream. And that's why a mother is wired or a woman is wired to hear those screams and go towards them to soothe them. Because that is a way that we will most likely survive. So this is why children of a young age, no matter how well their parents have the conversations, keep any vitriol or upset away from the kids, often even when it's handled ideally, a child of a certain age will say, the divorce is my fault. So in a way, part of our development is a natural place of being overly responsible. That's regular childhood development, y'all. If we are also highly sensitive, throughout the highly sensitive tribe, what I see, what I have known, come to know is true through my work, is that almost universally, unless we're really not dealing with our dysfunction and we're just getting wrapped up in chaos and chaos and distraction and denial, But if we are trying to own our healing and our growth, then we have the propensity to be overly responsible. And all these things that we observe, we tend to also take too much responsibility for. So because of that egocentric dynamic, we often think things are our fault that are not our fault when we're kids. And if you've been around an upset toddler, that makes a lot of sense. Because they don't empathically consider how their screaming fit is affecting everyone else. And we don't look at that toddler and go, what a little narcissist. Wow, it's all about them. We understand that as a stage of development. And ideally and hopefully, that child will grow out of that kind of selfishness and grow into more empathy, more containment of the self, more self-sufficiency. So we don't have to just wail and scream until someone serves our need like we had to as babies. So I knew the rules that were unspoken and were spoken because I was already a people pleaser at eight. And if you are currently a people pleaser in your life, it is likely that you were also pleasing in such ways by the age of eight. So I had learned that I got to feel good when an adult would look at me and say, oh, good girl, you just obeyed me. So I was really good at obeying. I wanted to be a good girl. 
And I did not want to feel the shame of not being a good girl. If I wasn't perfectly polite or someone knew I wasn't perfectly pleasant, I felt miserable with shame and embarrassment and humiliation. So I played along with these men as my mother wanted me to. I was supposed to act sweet and polite and be patient and kind. It was imperative that I make a good impression on men from my mom, and I knew it. I remember her dating this man who lived in Kenner, Louisiana. We were living in New Orleans at the time. And as a child, Kenner just meant by the airport, the place where planes would fly very close overhead. And this man had a swimming pool, so we'd be outside a lot in the swimming pool with planes flying overhead. So for years after this, every close encounter I had with a low-flying, loud plane reminded me of John. And I'm going to call this man John. I believe that was his name, but I can't totally be sure. And John didn't do anything atrocious to me at all. But I was a little observer. And I had John's number at eight years old. I knew in a confused way that sex was a thing. And a thing that we were definitely not supposed to do unless we were married. This was knowledge I would never forget because I had recently found out by asking my mother directly what the word bastard meant. I must have heard it on the playground or somewhere random. And she very matter-of-factly explained that I was a bastard. And not in a slang way. That's how I remember my little mind processing it. Like I understood on some level that someone might use the S word or the F word if they stubbed their toe as a reaction. I remember thinking, I am a curse word. That I was a bastard and not because I had done anything at all, but because God and church said I was the definition of the bad word. Because my mom was not married when she had sex and made me. My sisters weren't bastards because they married. I was the eldest. I was something bad and I was powerless to change it. It just was that I was a bastard. This may be a big part of the root of my overthinking when I look back on my life. I turned this over and over and over and over in my head in a way, looking back, that I would consider mildly obsessive. And if my mother were sitting right here today and there was some kind of universe where I could ask her a question about this, my guess, which is an unfair assumption, I will say, but often how it goes with people who shirk all responsibility and suffer from low empathy as I believe my mother does. My mother would be unable to empathize with how that felt for a little girl. To this day, I would expect her to defend her rightness and say something like, Nikki always thinks she's right. There's nothing I did right as a mother in Nikki's eyes. I told her the truth directly, and somehow she's the victim of that too. I just couldn't win when it came to Nikki. And that's how she positions herself to be the victim. That low empathy availability inside of her creates a block of being able to empathize with her child. That's not me blaming or shaming her. It simply is the way that these dynamics work. Would you like to relax or fall asleep? 
while learning about pivotal moments in history? If so, then try my new podcast, Calm History. It's a time machine of tranquility filled with immersive and fascinating stories from history. Prior episodes include The Pilgrims, Marco Polo, Henry Ford, Joan of Arc, Jackie Robinson, Klondike Gold Rush, Ancient Greek Olympics, Easter Island, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. There's also a six-part series about the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. The narcissists of our lives are often right in their cold logic. This isn't a logic problem. Narcissism is an empathy problem. I point this out to say that having low empathy parents meant that I soaked up low empathy for myself. And this is the people-pleasing trap. To have over-empathy for others, out of that people-pleasing, want to be a good girl, want to see that person smile, don't want anybody else to be uncomfortable, even while I'm wildly uncomfortable. So I overdo, I overshow up, I overfunction, and I overperform. And I undershow up for myself. When we do this as people pleasers, then we wonder why we allow friendships or dating or even toxic work environments month after month, year after year, for some of us decade after decade. Low empathy doesn't mean my mother didn't love me. I believe she did and possibly still does. But to her low empathy definition or her low empathy expression of love and care, low empathy means that something is missing The stuff of empathy is missing in a narcissist. And that means that that person is incapable of being a soft place to fall. Even if they decided in some kind of way that they wanted to be a soft place to fall, they would lack the empathy. They would lack the stuff that would allow them to be able to do that. And just like I can't give money to a charity unless I have it in the bank, a narcissist can't give empathy to a child because they don't have it in the bank. And the manipulation that can play within this dynamic is often that someone with narcissistic traits, if they seem empathic, they likely have an agenda and are in the position of setting something up for later or boxing you into owing them later. Kindness from a low empathy person is often just a disguise to position themselves to be able to make you feel like you owe them for the empathy that you desperately want and they just give you a little nugget of because it makes you hungry for more. And if you think you got a little nugget, you can think you can get a little more. So there's where the overfunctioning kicks off. So it was painful to be aware at such a young age, even though I didn't fully understand sex knowing my mother was having it with every man who came along. So it's cringy to think about. We're not supposed to know as kids that our parents are enjoying sex. That's self-protective in our biology to resist against incest. That's why we naturally feel icked out and we feel ew about knowing that about our primary family. 
It's a safety valve. It's a safety mechanism. And it was awkward in me and inappropriate to have been taught that premarital sex is bad and wrong and know that it's happening anyway. At the time, my schooling was starting the D.A.R.E. program to keep kids off drugs. They were really working us that cigarette smoking was bad. That was at the time when they would bring black lungs in in glass and pass it around to the students. So at the same age, when I'm looking at my mom trying to understand what hypocrisy is, that I'm watching her do things that she's teaching me are wrong. Also having school teach me that cigarette smoke was a way to hurt yourself and it was bad for you. And my mother smoked three packs of cigarettes a day while I had asthma inside of the house. So the older that I was getting, the more aware I was becoming, the more angry I was at this dysfunction, at the hypocrisy of it. But of course, I didn't have those words. I didn't have that language. So one day we were going to John's and what I despised about John was that he was phony and I knew it. Because he had a swimming pool, he manipulated us to go outside and be in the pool so they could have private time. Now, as adults, we know what that means. And today, very few responsible parents will leave small children to swim in a pool who were so young. But that's more proof of how parentified I was, how adult I was expected to be at a very young age. I swam like a fish and I was trusted to not let smaller kids drown my whole life. And that's a story for another day, but I used to watch up to eight or 10 or more kids at a time and bring them to the Mississippi Gulf Coast at the beach, the youngest of which was often one or two. This was when I was about 12 years old. So it was absolutely natural for me to be in charge of people that were younger. So it was nothing to be left with my sisters and a swimming pool. And I fumed outside in the swimming pool. I liked the slide that he had but I was pissed off while I was going down it. I was the embodiment of the little kid version of if looks could kill. But I don't really think looking back that I was showing that externally. I think I had already learned to paint a mask on my face and not show what I was really feeling. So I was seething on the inside. And in front of my mom, he acted like he loved kids. Sugary sweet in a way that turned me off. It felt icky. Somehow I knew this was manipulation well before I knew that word. I could feel it. The sweetness would leave his voice when my mom couldn't hear him. He never smacked me. He never tried to touch me inappropriately. He never did anything truly horrible or CPS worthy. But I hated him. And I wasn't allowed to hate. It was something that my grandmother was staunch strict about. That hating was not allowed and it was wrong. Today, I understand that I focused my hurt, my pain, and my rage at him. But I did it inwardly, at me. Outwardly, my mom knew I didn't want to go to his house, even though he had a swimming pool in hot as hell Louisiana. I balked and I protested and I said things like, I just don't like him, and was told that I didn't have a reason not to like him. And this is where we dismiss the experience of our children. From an adult's perspective, she was correct. Again, logically, you can't find an argument with her logic. But in lacking of empathy, she couldn't empathize with a smart, observant child who feels a whole lot, 
having lost her father, seeing this man take his place, there was lots of reason for me to be upset. At the time, my biological father was still coming in and out. So he would say, oh, I'll come get you on a Saturday morning and leave me hanging all day till he didn't show up. I would sob and sob and sob processing that I just wasn't important to him. So I directed all of that upset at this man, John. And I yearned for my father because he was actually warmer than my mother. Hugs felt better with him because he had more empathy available, though not a whole lot more. We had been living with my grandparents, and I knew my grandmother hated my mother allowing us to see that she was sleeping around. And my parents' very contentious divorce stretched over seven long years. So I had so many reasons to be upset, to be unsettled, to be ungrounded, to be confused, to be grieving, and to be hurt. So as a highly sensitive, empathic, sweet kid who was hurt, confused, angry, and abandoned, I focused my upset by creating the story I hate John and I want him to die. And being a good old Catholic girl, I knew how to pray. So I prayed for it. And I knew that was wrong too. That was not allowed. Jesus would not be cool with praying for somebody to die. So I knew I was being bad. It was a little rebellion at eight. I wished and I hoped. It was like a mantra. I just wanted him to die. I wanted him to die. That was my solution. That's what would end my pain. If he would just go away, that was the story I was telling myself even at eight. I wanted God and Jesus to take him away from me because he was stupid. And I spun on it obsessively over and over again. If you've ever seen a little old Catholic lady move through rosaries, holding the beads in her hand, saying a prayer per bead, that's the energy with which I repeated, I just want John to die. One day I heard my mother get a phone call. John had died of a heart attack. I remember standing in one spot. My grandparents' foyer had been converted into a room. I spent seven years of my life growing up in that room. It was a shared room with two bunk beds. My mother slept on the bottom beneath me. I slept on the top. That was my space, the top bunk bed. I remember standing next to the bunk bed, frozen. I felt ice running through my body in a way that scared me, cold to the bone, feet frozen in one spot. I don't consciously remember what came next. I suspect I was experiencing a real panic attack. I believed with every fiber of my being and with the innocence of a child that I had committed the most horrible sin, the sin that definitely would send me straight to hell, and I had ruined my entire life. I was a murderer. I was a criminal. I was raised in a police family, so I had a high awareness of good people and bad criminals. And this made me a very, very, very bad person, the worst kind of person. I was too young to understand sexual assault or sadist or sadism in crimes. So I genuinely believed that by wishing for his death, that I had done the worst thing that a human can do and that I had had the power to kill him and I killed him. 
I remember my mother in the days and weeks after being puzzled at my reaction. I vaguely remember her saying something like, why are you so upset? You didn't even like him. Like I was just weird for having the feelings I was having. I don't know that I was ever able to form the words to say to any adult around what I had been spinning on, what I had been wishing. I do remember a sort of half-assed therapy experience I had at about 17, somebody I didn't really jive with that my parents had picked. But I was able to name this part of my history and this story. And I was shocked beyond shock, even at 17, to feel my younger inner child sob. And that sob was releasing the old responsibility that I had carried for having killed a man in his late 40s or early 50s who died of natural causes of a heart attack. This came up again with the psychologist that evaluated me when I entered the hospital around the time when my dad was first arrested. In some ways, our old childhood stories can seem just like old stories, right? But some of our stories show us exactly where our core wounds rest, highlight exactly what our core issues are. It would take me years and years and years to truly decode my over-responsibility, to learn to take responsibility appropriately, not shirk out of my responsibility, out of shame or denial, and not over-own it or carry what was not my responsibility or wasn't my fault. I've done direct, intentional work to hold my eight-year-old inner child, to have the conversations the adults of my childhood didn't know how to offer me and that I needed. And this is the beauty of therapeutic work, that we can go back in time in this way and help give ourselves what we needed to fill in those holes, to heal those wounds so that that emptiness does not continue to plague us. And that dialogue that I used with myself, the process sounded something like this, with me holding, hugging, and comforting myself. That means my hands on my arms as if I'm holding a young one close to me. Hi, baby. Oh, I love you so much. I've got you. Big, grown-up me understands some things that I want to explain to you. First, it's okay that you were mad at John. He took up the spot that you wanted Papa to keep. Papa hadn't been very good at showing up, and you resented having a man you didn't want around showing up. You were so smart and right to know that he didn't really want you there and just wanted to hang out with Mom. That was exactly correct. You have sensitive superpowers that can know things sometimes that are hard to explain. And you knew some things about John and Mom, like sex. There is a word that you didn't know when you were eight. Hypocrisy. That's what you were sensing in your mom. Because she taught you that sex before marriage wasn't okay, but she was doing that and you knew it. And she was lying and she was having sex with different men and you knew that too. No one showed you what to do with all of those feelings. And so you made up a story about wanting John to die that came out of those feelings. 
that can happen when those feelings don't have another place to go. I want you to know that God and Jesus understand that you had so many confusing feelings and the best you could do was want John to go away. At eight years old, the best way we know of someone going away is dying. I know that you didn't really want anyone to actually die. You just wanted the icky feelings to stop and you wanted your papa to come home and be your papa. I love you so much. You are such a smart, observant, kind girl. Even kind, wonderful people have mean thoughts sometimes. I want you to know I forgive you. Wishes don't ever have the power to kill other people. And you didn't know that. But now you do. Will you help me by taking my forgiveness? Will you use some forgiveness to forgive yourself? To understand that hurt and pain creates scary stories sometimes. I hope you feel like you can trust me to help change any current scary or mean stories into peaceful or kind stories. And that if you have any hurts you need to get out, I will help you. We don't need mean stories anymore to process our pain and our hurt. But that was all you had back then. Do you understand? Do you know that wherever John is in his highest form, because we get to be our highest self after we die, that even John knows that your wishes didn't make him dead. His heart just stopped working, and it was his time to leave the earth. That's all. I love you, and I can hold you like this anytime you need. I'm here for you, and I'll never go away. It can be scary to look back and comprehend how much we knew of things as a very small, highly sensitive child and how much the adults around us had no idea the depths of our knowing, the struggle in our internal stories, the blame, the shame, and the responsibility we can pick up, whether we were taught directly to do so or simply because we are surrounded by inadequate emotional development in the adults that surround us as caretakers. I wonder what your highly sensitive little self assumes was your fault that today we can look back and know definitely, definitively, wholly that was not your fault. Whatever you did or didn't do was the best that you knew how to do at the time in the difficult circumstance, in the struggle. If this episode made you emotional or you felt intuition saying, yes, this, I offer that you sit down with yourself and journal and write to ask your inner psyche, your inner self, what are the stories of fault or of shame, of self-blame, of irrational power, like me thinking I could kill someone with my thoughts that you might be subconsciously carrying from your childhood? What if healing, if we boil it all down, is just really an exercise in what it is to forgive ourselves and hold ourselves with loving respect for the messy process that is life, the unfolding of our awareness as we become more conscious, as we become more aware of the invitations to awakening 
and the ways over time that we peel back the layers of the onion as the seekers that we are. There's no way any of you out there are resonating with emotional badass unless you yourself are a seeker. And maybe you've never even considered or heard that word before. Self-forgiveness is a necessary step on the path to self-love. This is why true self-care is not really about the pedicures, the long baths, the essential oils, or the cute self-care pictures you can see on Instagram. It's about working towards being able to stand in front of a mirror, integrating the experiences of our former selves, our former selves who didn't know any better than what they knew, being able to look at ourselves right in the eyes and say, I have made it through. I love you. You have always been lovable and I'm honored I get to keep on loving you because you are wonderful. And I love how we grow and how we keep evolving. If you hear this and your stomach drops in fear because you can't imagine facing yourself in a mirror in such a loving way, that's okay. Take a deep breath and love yourself through this moment and consider making this a goal. Now, I don't do cookie cutter care when people work with me one-on-one. However, I believe this to be a universal truth and I believe in it every fiber of my being. When we can finally stand in the mirror and be with ourselves in acceptance and love and respect and understanding and care. And this is a part that really gets dismissed in self-development, actually really liking yourself. This is when we know we have done the bulk of our work. And if this feels very far away to you, I promise at one time it did to me too. Just keep going. If you liked this episode, if this episode unlocked something for you, if you are learning to hold yourself in higher regard, respect, and love, please consider sharing this episode or any other episode that resonates with you right from our Emotional Badass website. It's emotionalbadass.com. I have been working hard to have some new offerings. I know those of you who have been on my waiting list have been on it a long time. I'm about to open up a new process to work with me individually. If you are curious or interested in the multiple ways that you may work with me in the coming year or so, please make sure that you are on our Patreon. For everything that I do, if you are a Patreon supporter of the show, you will get the best coupon code and you will get first access to any new thing that I put out there. If you'd like to be on my waiting list, to work with me individually, come sign up. You can find me at NikkiEisenhower.com or you can link to me from EmotionalBadass.com. Thank you for holding space for me as I grow and develop. I expect I always will and will never stop. So the longer you hang out with me, the more you're going to see me vulnerably changing, expanding, and growing. I think that's what I'm here to do. And as a seeker, I challenge that you're here to challenge yourself in such ways and to love yourself all the way through. I'm an emotional badass. You're an emotional badass. And together we are where Moxie meets Mindful. I'll see you next time. Right here. Light and love. Bye-bye.
Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com.